Good morning, friends. I'm Josiah Carey. I'm the RUF pastor at UVA. It's my joy to be with you this morning. RUF is the church going to the university, and I'm so grateful that our denomination prioritizes ministry to the university, to the college campus. Um, If you happen to be uh, sitting next to a college student this morning, don't be intimidated by them. Please introduce yourself after the service. They're truly wonderful people. Um, And as Kelly said, if you are a parent that's in town for Parents Weekend, I'd love to meet you after the service. Please come say hi. Um, So grateful for the way that Trinity Church supports RUF at UVA. And I also want to say I'm incredibly thankful for the way this church has supported me and my family over the last few months. Uh, It's just been enormously meaningful. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for encouraging us, caring for us, serving us. It's, It's meant the world. So thank you. So this week, I'm interrupting our Genesis series to invite you into something I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years. It's a question I've had to press into as I've labored as a pastor. And the question is this, who is sufficient for ministry? Who is sufficient for ministry? And I know that may sound entirely irrelevant to you, but I believe it's an important question for each person in this room. And here's why. If you're in Jesus, you are called to ministry. In fact, if you are human... Jesus calls you to ministry. And your reaction might be, uh, no, I don't serve on church staff. I don't intend to be. In fact, that's the last place I would want to be or probably should be. But what is ministry? For the Bible, ministry means service. And so we could say that even on the broadest level, everyone does some type of ministry because everyone serves something. In the famed words of Bob Dylan, maybe the devil and maybe the Lord, but you got to serve somebody, right? And that means no matter your faith this morning, you actually do ministry. You serve something. And Jesus calls each of us to serve the living God and in his name to serve our neighbors. Think about, if you're familiar with it, Ephesians 4, where it says it's not the pastor or church staff who do the work of ministry, but it's actually the people of God. It's the church. Ephesians 4 says God gives pastors and teachers to equip the saints, that's you, the people of God, for the work of ministry. So in a sense, the work of ministry is not the work of Chris Colquitt or Amy Piedra. It's yours. And their job is to equip you to serve. But to serve what? Ephesians 4 says we speak, we serve by speaking the truth in love. See, Christian ministry has content. And so if, if we are servants bringing platters, serving platters to our neighbors, what is on that platter? It's Jesus. Christian ministry means we get to serve our neighbors the good news message of Jesus in word and deed. And who among us, whether Chris Colquitt or yourself or myself, is sufficient for that mission? This is what this passage speaks to, and I believe there's really good news for all of us here. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We're going to skip down to chapter 3, verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me for the teaching of God's word? Father, be with us this morning. Would you give us understanding of this passage, and would you show us Jesus? Would you show us how to respond to this word this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in a recent study of medical students, it was discovered that 87% were totally convinced they'd fooled the admissions committee. 87% of, of medical students thought they had duped someone. They suffered from imposter syndrome. They, they thought they'd fooled the committee. They didn't belong. It was just a matter of time before someone found out. And of course, believing that you fooled the admissions committee is associated with high anxiety and distress and low sociability and self-esteem, Right? Now, if you're currently in med school, let me clue you in. You didn't fool anyone. The committee knows what they're doing, and you are their chosen person to learn medicine. And I'm talking about this because if you're a follower of Jesus, I think it can be common to experience a type of ministry imposter syndrome. You might even think you fooled these people around you into believing you belong here in this room right now, and then you hear this call to ministry, and you wonder, who am I to minister Jesus to my neighbors? Who am I to minister the gospel or serve the gospel to my neighbors? I struggle with sin. I'm hypocritical. I hurt people day in and day out. I don't know the theological answers. I'm angry at God. Who am I for God to use me? It's ministry imposter syndrome. And I imagine most of us in this room have this question, even though I'd guess this room holds among the most theologically trained Christians in the nation and world. But we have this doubt, and so we leave the ministry to the pastors and professionals who also share this doubt with you. (laughs) And so in this passage, I want you to see we're all called to serve Jesus to the world. The particular way God calls us to serve our neighbors, both as individuals and as a church, is to bring them or serve them the good news message of Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. It describes ministers of a new covenant, We bring to our neighbors a new covenant, a new way of relating to God based on Jesus' work rather than our own, based on the Spirit's work in us rather than our own willpower. And then chapter 2, verse 17 says, we speak in Christ. It's talking about speaking God's message about Jesus faithfully. So if you are in Jesus this morning, you are commissioned to serve your neighbors, Jesus. This is what Trinity Church is here in Charlottesville to do. This is what you are here in Seville to do, to bring Jesus to your neighbors. And that raises our question, who am I to do that? Who am I to invite a friend to read the Bible with me? Or to start talking to a friend about the work Jesus has done in my life? Or to suggest to someone who's living their glorious Charlottesville life that they should look to Jesus? Who am I? Have you ever felt that sense of inadequacy? Paul feels it. In verse 16, He asks, who is sufficient for these things? Who am I to minister Jesus? And I also think it's possible this question and fear can come from a complacent self-sufficiency. And many of us in this room are among the most professionally successful Christians in the nation and the world. Who am I to minister Jesus to my neighbors? I'm busy. I've got other things going on. My life's full and good without adding this mission onto it. I'm actually used to success in ministry fields full of ambiguity. It seems like it might open me up to discomfort and failure 
and loss, and I have a lot to lose. And then there are some of you in this room who haven't thought, who am I to minister to Jesus? But you have wondered, who am I to be loved by God? Who am I to go to church? It's just a matter of time before my neighbors find out I don't belong here. A loved by God imposter syndrome. And I know about each of these. And in our passage, Paul calls us all in Christ to confidence. Look at verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. This is an amazing statement. In Christ, Paul is confident of his ministry work, and not just confident toward others, but confident towards God. Paul founded this church in Corinth, and in verse 3 he says, this Corinthians' faith was something worked by God, but delivered by him. He's confident that God has used him in the life of this church. And you're thinking, that's the Apostle Paul. Of course God used him. But Paul is saying this to model for this church and for us the type of confidence we can have. He's saying, friends, in Christ, be confident in God. Be confident in God. Because God has made all those in him sufficient to serve Jesus to the world. God makes all those in Christ sufficient to minister Jesus to the world. Look at verse 5. Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers or servants of a new covenant. So Paul's saying, in myself, I am not sufficient But God has made me and all those in Christ sufficient to serve to our neighbors. Good news, that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. So how has God made us sufficient? Paul says, here's who you are. You are called, you are qualified, and you are equipped by God. If you are in Christ, you are called, qualified, and equipped by God to serve Jesus to your neighbors. So first, in Christ, you are called by God. I know I've already made this claim But I want you to see that our confidence in God's call is part of our sufficiency for the mission. There's a provocative metaphor in verse 14. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And so according to most scholars, this is Christ's victory procession. Jesus is coming home from his victor. And he's, uh, he's going home to a victory celebration. And what's provocative is he's leading those that he's captured. And so in this image, Paul is imagining all those who follow Jesus as Jesus conquered prisoners. They're his captives, and they're in his victory procession. And they now follow as captive servants. And what's surprising also is that these captives are rejoicing. It's a triumphal, joyful procession. Even Paul himself is rejoicing. He says, "Um, thanks be to God. He is so happy that he's been taken captive by Jesus. See, for those in Christ, something has happened to them. They've been conquered by Jesus, by his love, kindness, humility, sacrifice, atonement, resurrection. And so they are now his servants. We are captured to serve. And this language might sound repulsive, but you've got to serve somebody. We either serve false gods or the living God. And so God's capture of his people to serve is actually wonderful news. He captures us to bring us into his good kingdom. In Colossians, Paul puts it this way. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, the kingdom that used to hold us captive, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're now captives to the beloved son in his kingdom, and that's worth rejoicing. If you're in Christ, God has rescued you, that you may serve him. And this reframes how we think about our salvation. The purpose of our salvation is not that we might have eternal life, not merely We're actually saved in order to serve. We're saved by Jesus in order to serve. 
You know how when you join Trinity, you have to go to this crazy long membership class, right? It's like five weeks long, maybe longer, I don't know. Um, you should go to this class, it's great. But being a member of a church <laughs> doesn't mean that you, you went to a class. You know, it's also not the same as being a member of a club, like having your name on a list where you get access to a place. In the Bible, being a member means being a body part. You're, you're a member of the body. And whose body are you part of? It's Jesus's. And what does Jesus do with his body? He serves. He gives himself. He lays his life down in love. And so as you give Jesus to serve your neighbors, that's how we participate as members of this body, of Jesus' body. We're saved in order to serve. And this reframes how we see those that we serve. It shows us that ministering Jesus is an act of rescue. Ministering Jesus is an act of rescue. We're called by God to participate in his rescue of our neighbors from their false allegiances. See, the common view holds that everyone should freely live their truth. And this view makes evangelization and personal testimony evil and a power play because it does violence to another person's truth. And certainly Christianity has been and can be done in a way that's violent or as a power play or coercively. And that's not what we're talking about this morning. It's not Jesus' philosophy of ministry. But for the Bible to bring someone into contact with the living God by bringing them into contact with his word is to rescue them. It's to do justice and mercy. It's to bring life to the dead. It's to set the captives free. To be taken captive by Christ is to find true freedom. And captives of God's conquest always become and are sent as agents of grace. We have been rescued and delivered into the kingdom of the beloved Son. How can we not desire that rescue for others? Friends, if our question is, who am I to minister Jesus? This passage says, you are called, even captured by God, to serve Jesus to your neighbors. We've been rescued that we might become rescuers. And so the question isn't, who am I, but how will I? How will I offer Christ and his word to my neighbors? You are God's chosen person to do ministry. And so by way of application, two things. It's worth asking what kingdom has captured your heart. Maybe you find another God has captured your imagination. And whatever has captured our imagination is the God we'll serve. Friends, are you walking in that joyful, triumphal procession? And then second, I already said this, but I just want to reiterate, it's not the pastor's job to speak Christ to your neighbors. That's your job. And one way you can do that is by inviting them to church. That's a great way to do that. But also, you really can speak Christ to your neighbors. You really can tell the story of what he's done in your life or why you trust him, why you love him, what he's done on the cross. We've outsourced our ministry labor, but the call is for you. In what relationships is God calling you to speak Christ? Many of our questions about how we're qualified to do this still remain, right? In verses 16 and 17, Paul is asking, who is sufficient to speak as from God in Christ? That's a tremendously lofty calling. Who can speak God's words? And Paul is referring, not, I believe, not only to the preacher's duty, not only to the apostles, but to ours together as members in Christ. And that brings us to point two. In Christ, you are qualified by God. Paul makes it clear it's not his own awesomeness. It's not his goodness or personality or talent or degrees that qualify him 
It's only what God has done. And so I want you to look again at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So I want you to remember Apostle Paul's story. He was full of self-righteousness, so much so that he was murdering Christians blind, thinking he was doing the right thing, right? And it wasn't that one day he decided he was going to get his act together, pull him up by his bootstraps, and through skill and willpower, start actually serving God. That's not what happened, right? Paul didn't qualify himself. He got qualified. Jesus literally knocked him off his horse. He literally had to reveal himself to Paul and reveal all he'd done and tell Paul, you're my chosen instrument to take this message to the nations. None of Paul's qualification is from him. It's all what God and Jesus has done for him. And you might think, well, I don't have that kind of crazy conversion story, right? But what Paul is doing is merely pointing us to the basic message of the gospel. Apart from the gospel, the question in our minds is, what bar do I have to meet? How good do I need to be to be loved by God? How good do I need to be to be used in my friend's life? How qualified do I need to be to speak Christ to a neighbor? But the message of the gospel is Jesus has met the bar for you. Your bar is met. There's no need for imposter syndrome because you haven't fooled anybody. God sees you, and because of Jesus' qualifications, he loves you, and he's qualified you to serve. And we receive all this by faith, and even our response of faith is a gift and an exhibit of his work in us. It's all from him. See, the bar isn't on you, but on Jesus. The only bar for you to meet is to know you need what he's done, and receive it. I think that's amazing news. So I grew up in Charlottesville, and one of the more amazing moments in my life, I was a junior in high school, and somehow I made the Covenant varsity soccer team. Uh, We were amazing. We were top 10 in the state. I was awful. I don't know how I made the team. And we went to a tournament hosted by Eastern Mennonite. It was our rival soccer team. And we made it to the championship where we hosted, uh, we played Eastern on their own turf. Some of you in this room, I believe, were there. Um, and we not only beat them, we destroyed them four to nothing. And I sat on the bench the whole tournament (laughs) until the very last few minutes of the championship game when we were up by so much, it didn't matter if I played or not, right? But because of what the team had done, I got to participate. And not only that, I got to call myself a champion. I was qualified as a champion not because of anything I had done, but because of who I was identified with and what they had done. And from their work, I was qualified to participate. And friends, in the same way, we are qualified to be loved by God, and we are qualified to serve Jesus to our neighbors, not based on anything we've done, but based on who we are identified with and what Jesus has done. Okay, but this story isn't over yet. Because we're sitting at the awards ceremony after the game. We're celebrating as awards were being called out. And then they called out the MVP award for the tournament. And they said, the MVP is Josiah Carey. And I just sat there stunned in disbelief, like so confused. And I looked at my teammates, and they're all silent, as confused as I was. (laughs) And then three seconds later, they burst, erupted into joy. And they started cheering. They were so happy that I was the MVP. (laughs) But who am I to win the MVP? I played five minutes and I did nothing. <laughs> but they, they start telling me to go take the trophy. 
they were so happy for me. And so I, I went up and I took the MVP trophy for one of our school's all-time great soccer triumphs, clearly not based on anything I had done. <laughs> I realized later it was based on what my friend Chris Short had done. Chris was a star striker on the team and he scored several goals. And from a distance, we look very similar. <laughs> Similar height, similar build, similar hair. And so he earned the award, but when the people looked on the field at the end of the game, they saw me, and they looked up my number on the roster, and it said my name. And this is an example of injustice. <laughs> but the amazing news is that when God looks up your name to see if you're qualified to be loved by him, and qualified to serve him, he sees Jesus. If you are in Jesus, the one who's earned it, you are God's MVP, and he erupts with joy, and it's perfectly just, because everything to Jesus' name is also to yours. The MVP is for all who are connected to Jesus by faith, who are members of him, who are identified with him. And so God says, of course you're my MVP for the gospel message. Not based on what you have done, but based on what my son has done. It's just because God in Jesus has on the cross borne all your failure and given you all his merits if you've received what he's done for you. And so friends, because we're qualified by his work and not ours, we can't have any pride or arrogance in our qualification. Only humility and joy and wanting to share what we've received. See, it's the one who knows they need God's grace that is qualified to serve others the healing message of Jesus. When you wonder, who am I to serve the gospel? You're qualified by God to serve the gospel. You're not qualified because you're perfect. You're qualified because you need Jesus, and he's qualified you, and you've experienced his undeserved grace. So friends, to rest in what Jesus has done for you, what would that change for you? Wouldn't it remove some need to prove ourselves? Wouldn't it give some courage to lean into this command to speak Christ in love to our neighbors? Wouldn't it give a new joy in the message that we have to share? A message of come to the one in whom you're qualified, not based on anything you've done, but all what he's done. Wouldn't it give a new humility before our neighbors? Because I haven't done anything to qualify myself. It's all his work. Wouldn't it give us compassion and forbearance with one another and even with our pastors, as we see we're all just people who need Jesus. Wouldn't it give us courage to speak Christ's love even to our own hearts when we discover that deep selfishness and sin in us? Wouldn't it give us freedom to try to love people in a new way, even if we fail? Trinity, be confident in God. He has qualified you to minister the gospel to your neighbors. See, when you know what Christ has done, you know you have something so good to give. You have a good news message about God's work. You've received all this, and now you have all this to offer. And that brings us to our third point. In Christ, you're actually equipped to bear this message. <clears throat> God doesn't call you to the task and qualify you for it and then fail to equip you. When you trust Jesus, he puts his spirit in you. You're not just in his body, but his life is flowing through you, to equip you. Look at verse 3. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is who you are. God's put his spirit 
in you when you received him by faith. It's the resurrection life of God himself at work in you. And so that means you're equipped because the spirit who raised Jesus' body is currently working through you to raise your neighbors. And Paul gives us two amazing images of what the spirit is doing through us here. First, you're the aroma of Jesus. Look at verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so this word in the Greek means aroma, means a sweet smell. Through you, God is spreading this sweet smell of him. If you're in Jesus, you bear this smell just by being in him. And it's also true we smell better as we stay closer in step with his spirit. And this is why ignoring his word, saying I'm going to take this part and ignore this part, it adds these off-putting whiffs of self to that aroma of Jesus. And I, I think this matters because our world tends to see those who follow Jesus wholeheartedly as uh, stupid or maybe even evil, right? But if Paul is right, if we follow Jesus more wholeheartedly and we pay closer attention to his word, we will actually bear a sweeter smell. I believe this is why Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. called, he did not call white moderate Christians to actually give up the faith, but he actually called them to attend more closely to Jesus. In his now famous letter from the Birmingham jail, King wrote, In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and fell below their environment. The other, Jesus, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. And so what King is doing is he's, he's telling Christians to follow Jesus. You might be seen as extreme. <clears throat> but by following Jesus, you will more extremely bear love, truth, and goodness into the world. He was calling them to follow Jesus in the extremity. The solution for Christianity smelling bad in the world isn't to follow Jesus less wholeheartedly, but more so. Do you smell just like your non-Christian friends? If you do, who will notice? What sweetness will that bring? Trinity, you are the aroma of Christ to those around you. And I actually think many of your neighbors would love to smell the sweet smell of Jesus' love for them and of his promise of resurrection. Don't be afraid to give off that smell. And here's another reason you don't have to be afraid. Paul says you are the aroma to God. So when a triumphant general returned home, they would actually burn incense for him to celebrate his victory. And so it's actually not your smell, but it's the smell of God's triumph over you, rescuing you. It will smell sweet to those around you, and it might smell not sweet to some of those around you, but it always smells sweet to God. That means no matter how people respond to you as you bear Jesus, it always pleases God. You are Jesus' aroma. And the other image that we find in this passage is this. You are a letter from Jesus. Look at verse 3. This is amazing. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. So the people of God are a letter from Jesus. To whom? Trinity Church, this is claiming that you are a letter, you are God's letter from Jesus to the world. You are God's letter to the world. Since the message is how God is redeeming his world, the church is the way God tells his world the good news what he's up to. The church is the way he says, I'm redeeming this place. You're a letter of invitation to to your neighbors into his love. And so how will Jesus write that letter here in Charlottesville? 
to mix metaphors, as you take up your serving platter to serve Jesus to your neighbors, how will Jesus write you? He is. He is writing you. What confidence does that give? You are more than equipped. So friends, for application, just want us to ask, what will it look like to serve Jesus to our neighbors? Here are a few ideas. Maybe it will mean not censoring your beliefs about Jesus and meaning and hope around your friends, not hiding that central part of your identity. Maybe it will mean inviting someone to church with you or read the Bible with you. Maybe it will mean taking your neighbor's trash out to the street or baking them cookies. Maybe it will mean connecting something you love about their friends, like their generosity or their love for justice, to the Bible's story and showing them how it actually fits the Bible's story better than the story they believe of the world. It's more coherent in God's story than the secular one. And if you're not yet in Christ, maybe this means letting your heart believe this good news about what Jesus has done and resting in his love. Here are two things I know you're equipped with. You're equipped with God's word. God is actually speaking in his word. There's real power in it. And so open his word. When you open his word, um, when, you, when you meet with a friend, open his word. Uh, if they're in Christ, open his word and encourage each other in that. If they're not in Christ, consider opening his word. Consider that your power to change them is not in your goodness or personality, but it's actually in the word and message of Jesus that you have to share. And then you're also equipped with the Spirit. And this means as you offer yourself to your neighbors in love to minister to Jesus, your confidence is not in yourself or your gifts or your knowledge. It's actually in God. It's humble confidence born of faith in him. And he promises when you move out in that confidence, you will see him work. So in the immediately following passage after this, Paul starts talking about Moses. And so you might remember Moses at the burning bush. And God told Moses at that burning bush, he'd seen the affliction of his people, and he was coming to deliver them. And God called Moses to participate. Here's what he said. He said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And that's our question. Who am I to be used by God to deliver people from death to life? And God responded to Moses in a really funny way. He said, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. God equips you. It's not because you are able, but because God will be with you by his spirit in you, making you the sweet smell of Jesus, making you a letter to the world. Friends, who am I to serve Jesus to my neighbors? Well, you're Jesus's. And he has called you and qualified you and equipped you. You are his chosen person to minister to Jesus. Be confident in him. He's sufficient. Let me pray. Father, we praise you uh, for the goodness of this word. We praise you that your word always opens up just a beautiful message of your work for us, your love for us. And this morning we're in awe of the call on us that you might use us to bless people around us, to, to rescue them, to bring them from death to life. And none of it is our work, of course. It's all yours. And so, Lord Jesus, would you be kind by your Spirit to use us? And may we rejoice not in the things that we see in us, but we, may we rejoice in your work And may we rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.